Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. Uh, we welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer you live and then certainly after the show. It's my uh, privilege to introduce my co-host. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to ZDNet, Harvard Business Review, and lately I see him on CNBC and Fox Business, so he's everywhere. And uh, in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host as well, Bala Afshar. He's the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. More importantly, one of the top followers on Twitter for CIOs, CMOs, CEOs, and people are asking for advice all over the place. And you're also seeing him on TV everywhere. So, but hey, it's not about us. It's about all the cool new stuff that's happening. And who better to talk about this awesome new trend than our next guest? I'll tell you, for the last couple of decades, if you want to talk about cool new stuff, there was one place you wanted to go and one person you wanted to hear from, and that's Robert Scoble. He's the chief strategy officer at Infinite Retina, and he's the founder of Scobalizer. So uh, spatial computing age is coming and businesses need to adapt. Infinite Retina is a full service agency that exists to help companies enter and succeed in spatial computing, which we're going to learn from, from Robert. Robert gives you a front row seat on the future, literally. He had the first ride in the first Tesla. Siri was, Siri was launched uh, in his house. Uh, Robert has been uh, first to share all sorts of technology co and, and companies with you from Flipboard to Pandora to Instagram. Uh, best place to find uh, uh, Robert, it's on his Facebook profile at Robert Scoble. He's been a technology blogger since 2000, was one of the five people who built Microsoft Channel 9 video blog community, worked at Fast Company Magazine running the TV efforts, and has been part of the technology media business since 1993. You can also follow his amazing work. His in tweet actually gives you a view of spatial computing at Scobalizer, S-C-O-B-L-E-I-Z-E-R. Welcome, Robert Scoble, one of the original evangelists to the <laughs> it's an honor being here. It, 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 hearing that intro, I'm, I'm just realizing I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, you are you are living on. I don't even know if there's a word for something even closer to the edge than bleeding edge. Yeah, <laughs> on the exponential spatial edge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my license plate is uh, on my Tesla is Neo fan because I I'm a fan of new and my goal is to be the first to see things and sometimes sometimes I actually achieve that goal. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's awesome. You know, one of these top topics, and you were with us at our healthcare transformation summit last week in Las Vegas talking about this concept around spatial computing. And so let's talk by, about what is spatial computing and yeah. why is it happening now? Well, uh, spatial computing is computing that you, a robot or a virtual being can move around in. And this is the fourth paradigm of personal computing, right? The, the first one was the Apple II where you type to a computer. The second one was something like the Macintosh where you uh, could drag icons around a screen and, and see things in WYSIWYG. The third one is the phone, right? And we're all addicted to our phones. And the fourth one, you're gonna wear a pair of glasses to move around computing. Computing is gonna be on every surface 
in a factory floor, for instance, or in your house or in a shopping mall. And why is it happening now? Because Moore's Law is still in effect. <laughs> wow, I thought Moore's Law was dead. I thought we uh, you know, we, we try to kill that thing every day, every year, but it still is, uh, you know, chips are still getting smaller. More transistors are getting put on a chip. You know, our Teslas are about to get an upgrade with, with 21 billion transistors on a little thing about the size of your fingernail, right? And so um, that's what's happening. It, it's, we're seeing innovation coming out of the military is really what's going on. I mean, Siri came out of the military. People forget that, right? Siri was used for 17 years uh, by the military before it uh, came out as an app on your iPhone, right? And we're seeing uh, all sorts of new 3D sensors. I, I just looked back at some of the early interviews I did with uh, PrimeSense's CEO, which got bought by Apple. And, they, and, and back then, a 3D sensor was about this big, right? Now it's in the tip of your uh, iPhone. It's in that little notch, that little black thing at the top of your screen. There's one of those sensors now. And so in just five years, it's shrunk from something this big to something this big, right? And we're about to see um, optic, optics are getting better at that same rate, right? Um, the HoloLens this year gives you bigger field of view, Magic Leap, same thing. And we're about to see a revolution in optics over the next three, four, five years. Um, and you're going to start seeing glasses come along that are smaller and smaller than this big, big HoloLens, which nobody likes to wear something this big and this ugly, right? How did that, again, so, so Ray and I and folks that are trying to understand the future, you have been among the, you know, the top um, influencers, thought leaders, practitioners, um, since I can remember. So how did you end up at Infinite Retina? What did they do to pull you in? Yeah. I think any company that has you as their chief strategy officer <laughs> is, is going to be I, two, three, four years ahead of the rest I, of Irina called me and said, we need, the industry needs a new book. There's no good information about what's happening in all these verticals of, you know, about spatial computing. I met, um, last night I was, meet, I was at the SVVR meeting and I met this company called Nucleus VR which is making a uh, enterprise factory floor. They're virtualizing the factory floors and then putting people in HoloLenses or Oculus Quest. Um, and, and there's just not good information yet. The journalists who cover this industry, you know, they rewrite press releases for the most part. They're, they're, it's hard to find information about companies like this and about what's coming. And so um, she called me up and said, oh, why don't we uh, do a book? And I said, why don't we do a company? And so that, <laughs> that kicked that off. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, for the last year and a half, I've been sort of um, really doing a lot of new homework, going uh, um, over on Infinite Brand. I built a whole bunch of uh, lists of the industry about I went through about 100,000 Twitter accounts and separated them out into 10,000 people who are doing spatial computing. And then I've separated those out into 50 lists. And that lets me uh, study the world. And then I've been going around to Magic Leap and Microsoft and HoloLens and uh, uh, Google and uh, Facebook and understanding how the big players are thinking about things. And then I'm getting around to a whole bunch of these little companies that are springing up uh, like mushrooms after a rain. Uh, to understand what's going on and what and why, yeah. There's seven industries that are going to see radical disruption in the next decade, like real deep disruption. Seven. Um, 
seven industries, FinTech, healthcare, entertainment, education, retail, uh, um, telecom, which is included in entertainment, and there's a couple others that I am forgetting. <laughs> so. and, and, and Twitter is your knowledge database, because if I recall, it was 3,500 yeah. companies, 4,400 uh, people, yeah. and you really, it, your pinned tweet actually shows these incredible lists that yeah. you've and you're displaying in the spatial computing uh, realm where you can look at all these columns that speak to different domain experts, yeah, I've, industries, and so on and so forth. I have TweetDeck and I have them split up into venture capitalists or investors in the space and uh, leaders, CEOs, right? Uh, and then I separated out some verticals like healthcare, entertainment, uh, sports, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then the journalists are in a separate column. So I can watch uh, my screen on TweetDeck um, and with these 50, 50 columns. And it's really fun when news breaks. Like this morning, Minecraft uh, showed off a new uh, uh, mobile version of their, uh, uh, an augmented mobile version of Minecraft where you can walk around the world and put Minecraft down on the, on the real world. And that got discussed by a lot of people. It, oh, yeah. it really flashed through. Uh, Twitter quickly because Minecraft, every kid plays Minecraft. So, you know, how, how many of you get bugged by your kids? Oh, can I play Minecraft on the phone? You know, <laughs> right. Totally. So, totally. That's it. You know, it lets me watch that. And then it lets me uh, figure out who I need to interview and see something new like that. And so now I want to go see that new thing and uh, uh, talk to some PR person at Microsoft so I can get a but, but Robert, when you talk spatial computing, right, you're talking AR, VR, but you're also talking autonomous vehicles, too, in a very interesting way. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot of infrastructure required to support spatial computing. A huge amount. And it's it's the AI that's driving it underneath, right? Um, when Apple comes out with that 5G iPhone next September, they're going to bring something out to the market. We're still arguing, you know, sort it's amazing how many different rumors I'm hearing about what Apple's doing, that they're doing sports glasses or they're doing something like a Jordy uh, monitor with uh, a 180, de 180 degree display, right? Uh, it's uh, with high res micro OLED displays in it. And, uh, and Microsoft, uh, Apple's not alone, right? Uh, Microsoft's spending somewhere around $10 billion on this stuff. Facebook has two huge buildings they're building to hold all this stuff. Uh, um, Magic Leap has $2.6 billion, right, of investment, and they're doing stuff. And so, um, you know, within a few years, we're going to have a pair of glasses on our face that gives us a wide field of view, sort of like this HoloLens, with, you know, a pretty nice budget of, of polygons. We should talk about the role of polygons in this world, right? We're building a digital... <laughs> Somebody put, the, the nucleus guy put it this way, we're building a digital copy of the real world. Right. right. And uh, they've already started virtualizing factory floors. Volkswagen has virtualized their entire factory floor so that they can do training in VR and that they can do design of, of a, if they need to change a section of the factory and put some new tooling in there, they go into VR and start thinking them through, okay, where do the robots go? Where do the humans go? What's yep. the job? How do we get parts into that thing? They do that all in VR before they build a factory. Right. 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 I, um, I met a couple of weeks ago with the chief technology officer of Okada, e-commerce yeah. company based out of UK. And you know, it's a multi-billion dollar company now where 3,000 robots in a, in a factory that's four times a football pitch, 
moving 200,000 products uh, uh, a day. Wow. And that, they have a digital twin, an incredibly precise digital twin of the factory floor because now they're selling this yeah. to the digital commerce to grocery outlets. And uh, it's amazing how they're, as you said, training, optimizing, extending, using a digital twin uh, replica. So here's yeah. one industry, uh, and it was a couple of the major grocery stores that are taking advantage of Alcada's capability to compete against Amazon. So that's one example. Where do you see this adoption of spatial computing? Will it be B2B, B2C, or really all? For all of them. All. All. This is going Everyone. to affect. Everyone. This is going to affect everything in the next decade. Every everything is going to have a digital twin, um, and and people are just getting taste of it. I mean, literally this morning with the Minecraft thing, Minecraft is building a digital twin of the world. So when you aim your camera. At a, at a building, right, in New York or something, and you put Minecraft on it, that's creating a digital twin of that building, right? And the factory floor, when we're wearing HoloLenses or Magic Leaps, we're building a digital uh, twin. And the military is building a digital twin, a, a, a simulation of the real world so that they can train the kids to run an aircraft carrier or shoot a gun or whatever they want to do, right? And surgeons, I, I'm working with a company in Boston that's doing uh, surgery in hall lenses where it overlays the MRI data on the human body, right? And they're in FDA uh, trials right now. So that'll come out in two wow. or three years, right? Um, and it, it's endless. The, the, the AI that's underneath all this stuff is endless. I, uh, I'm on uh, the 31st, I'm going to New York, New York to Betaworks where they're doing a... Uh, synthetic day and they're talking about generative music because they're they're uh they're startups now that are building um ai systems to generate music which doesn't yet uh come up to uh winning the voice but it'll replace the music you hear in your elevator right like which is non-copyright royalty free yeah you know, and they're on the fly and they're showing me synthetic beings and I, this is a it's hard to dream about this, but when, when you get these glasses, right, um, you can have somebody playing football with you in rec room, right? Or basketball or paintball or stuff like that, right? In VR, you can play with somebody in rec room uh, virtually. Well, what it happens if you are playing with a machine and it looks pretty damn good? Um, uh, Magic Leap has been showing off a virtual being called Micah where you're gonna to talk to her and she's gonna interact with you. She already played a video game, a game on your coffee table with you uh, with, with puzzle pieces that are virtualized, right? Virtual puzzle pieces. Oh God, and, yeah. and one of the things that we're gonna see is a new uh, uh, AI that actually sings music. It's a character that looks sort of like a human, but it's all AI, right? And um, at, at the Dali Museum, I, I forget the museum name, but they have ingested all the music, uh, the, the videos of Dali, and they recreated Dali as an AI now, and he talks to you in the museum when, he, when you go in. And it's pretty <laughs> convincing. And my son saw that, and he said, oh, they're going to bring Steve Jobs back. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, that's, that's Salvador Dali Museum. It's, it's really cool. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it's pretty wild to see that come back like fully resurrected uh, yeah. it's almost freaky 
right? Yeah. So, so that's kind of well. What it makes me wonder: Am I really talking to Ray Wang right now, or am I talking to a, a digital twin, and he's off on the beach somewhere? <laughs> clone number two. Yeah, sorry, I'm not, it's clone number two. So. <laughs> At the beginning, you were kind of alluding to some of the key players, right? Yeah. You're listing them off in terms of what they were doing. Um, but but the the one that was interesting to me is what is Apple planning to do in this space, and why does it matter? Apple, all right, so here's why it matters. Um, I've been going around and, and everybody I meet, I ask them, how many Facebook Oculus Quests are gonna sell in the next 15 months, right? Mm -hmm. Oculus Quest is a VR headset that doesn't have a tether to a machine. It's self-contained, it's 400 bucks. So it yep. fixes a lot of the problems that VR had and people inside the industry are very excited by it, mm -hmm. right? And I'm getting three of them next week. They, they ship next week, right? Wow. So how many, I've been asking people, how many do you think our Facebook is gonna sell of those? Uh, keep in mind the entire VR industry sold about 4 million headsets, maybe five now. That's it? That's it, right? Mm -hmm. Oculus Quest that I have, you know, the, or the Oculus Rift that I have down here on the floor or a HTC Vive, yeah. right? There's only been a few million of those sold or Sony PlayStation VR, right? That's included in the mix. Yep. And so only a few million have sold total of the industry, right? Of these six degree of freedom headsets. Six degree of freedom means you can move around, which is true spatial computer. So I've been asking people that and the average answer is around 2 million. That most people think, oh, Facebook's gonna maybe double the sales of Oculus Rift with them. Wow. I say seven and nobody has come up with an answer more, more higher than seven. Right, including internally at Facebook. I think the internal Facebook number is between two and seven because of the, how they reacted to me, right? Does any, anybody want to argue with these numbers? Because this helps, helps contextualize, <laughs> contextualize why Apple is so important, right? So how many iPhones does Apple sell a quarter? 50,000. 50, hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, 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 I thought you said every hour, my bad, yeah. <laughs> All right, good save. <laughs> My bad. Quarter. Yeah. Uh, every quarter they sell 200 million phones, right? Even, and sales are down 30% right now because people, I mean, how many of you still are carrying an iPhone X? I'm, I'm carrying my iPhone X. I'm buying. Oh, I have an X, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're holding our phones now for three years instead of buying them every year, right? Mm -hmm. And some people are holding them for four years, right? Because they're expensive. They're 1,000, 1,500 bucks now. And the improvements each year aren't enough to get us to go stand in line again and buy another phone, right? So 200 million is sort of like the baseline of where things are, right? How many 5G iPhones does Apple going to sell? I assume they're gonna sell a more. A billion. Well, in the first quarter, right? Oh, probably 100 mil, yeah. Uh, no, I think I think the, the level's 200 million right now. I think the level's gonna go 300 million or 250 or 350 million, right? Somewhere in that range, right? So let's call it 300 million, right? Because people are gonna be real excited about this 5G iPhone. Uh, we went, you took us to the stadium in Las Vegas where they're putting 5G in. Yep, yep. And they're already talking about, you know, going and sitting at a concert or at a hockey game, mm -hmm. holding up your phone, 5G phone. First of all, you can make a call. I, I was at the World <laughs> Series at AT&T Park 
and I couldn't make a call because <laughs> everybody was trying to take a selfie of themselves and post it to Facebook, right? Look at me at the World Series, right? And then we swamped the antennas and they couldn't make a call. 5G fixes that problem. You can have thousands of times more devices per cell tower than with an LTE radio, right? Right, and, 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 and multiplexing too. So. Yes, and we also get a lot of bandwidth. We get 10 gigabits per second down to our phone. You know, Verizon already is shipping a phone and you can stand in a certain neighborhood in New York and you can see it. The people posted the YouTube videos yesterday showing that they're getting 10 gigabits per second on a phone. It's crazy, right? Really fast bandwidth. And you get two millisecond latency to the cell tower. So we can play all sorts of new augmented reality or video uh, VR games with each other, like basketball or something. And we'll try robotic surgery too. Same thing, right? This, this changes everything, but the stadium, the stadium already has the radios. We saw the radios in place, but it's ready for us to get our 5G iPhone. And we're going to go to some hockey game next year in the uh, Las Vegas T-Mobile stadium and arena. And we're going to be like looking at all sorts of cool stuff on our phone. Right? So how many people are going to buy a 5G iPhone next year, next September? I think it's about 300 million people in the first quarter, right? And how many of those are going to buy a pair of the glasses? And, you know, there's two paths for Apple to go down, some sort of digital display like a Google Glass kind of thing. North is showing off these glasses, which have an information, a little information display. You can see your notifications and your calendars. And if mom calls, she pops up there, right? And you get uh, navigation around the world, right? You can look around and see which way you're supposed to walk down the street to go to the Starbucks or whatever, right? Wow. Um, but what I'm, what I'm hearing is a separate rumor, which is they're going to have a Geordie pair of glasses with wraparound micro OLED displays. Sony, uh, Samsung has a patent on the displays, by the way, wraparound 180 degree yep. display with an 8K monitor right in the middle, wow. right? Which would be, if... If that comes true, and I'm I'm dreaming, um, and I'm hoping, I'm praying every day for Jim Cook to bring these to me, right? If that happens, it's the best monitor you've ever seen because yeah. the monitor behind you is what a 1K or a 4K TV, and you watch 700, 700, um, uh, you know, 700K. I've... You're watching less than 1K content on it, right? Yeah, Sports is not, uh, yeah, it's not that live. But right. I, I've got to I've got to cut you off soon because we're running out of time. Okay, but so. why is Apple important? How many of these glasses are going to sell? Ten percent? That's thirty million glasses in the first quarter, right? So, so we're going to sell ten times more than the industry has sold so far. So we assume Apple normally sells forty to fifty million iPhones a quarter, just to set that baseline. These okay. numbers are going to be huge compared to everyone else, which is almost forty to fifty x of what's being sold on the market. We're live here with Robert Scoble, Chief Strategy Officer at Infinite Retina and founder at Scobalizer. You've known him for his evangelism, all new hot tech. He's talking spatial computing. Follow him on Twitter at Scobalizer. Come back, please. I will. It's fun to talk to you guys. We'll see you at CCD as well. So, all right, man. Take care. Thanks. Thank you, Robert. Uh, I got to tell you, yeah, you want to stay on the front of uh, what's happening in tech. That's the guy you want to follow. No questions asked. He is the first to reveal a lot of new technology and I've been following him for years. And uh, maybe he would be called a loon shot. I don't know, but let's, let's <laughs> great segue to our next guest. We have Safi Bacall, second generation physicist 
and author of Loon Shots. He's a best-selling author of Loon Shots. How to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars, cure diseases, and transform industries. A great segue from our, uh, from our first segment. Safi is a second-generation physicist, son of two astrophysicists and a biotech entrepreneur. He received his BA summa cum laude from Harvard and his PhD from Stanford. After that, he went working for three years as a consultant for McKinsey, and he co-founded a biotechnology company developing new drugs for cancer, which led him to be profiled by Malcolm Gladwell in The New Yorker. He then led uh, an IPO, which uh, led to him serving as a CEO for 13 years. In 2008, he was named Erson Young New England Biotechnology Entrepreneur of the Year. In 2011, he worked with the President's Council of Science Advisors and in the Future of National Research. Another great follow on Twitter at S-A-F-I-B-A-H-C-A-L-L. Welcome, Safi, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, delighted to be here. All right, there, go. there it is, the best-selling <laughs> best book in itself. Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, you're calling live from Cambridge. Uh, let's talk about loon shots. And it's kind of interesting because people are like, is that a moonshot? In Cambridge, as you know, would have been where the Space Center would have been uh, had not uh, Kennedy been assassinated. So, so the point being is, like, what is a loon shot versus a moonshot? Sure, I, I do get that question every now and then. And the reason I, I use that word is because if you look at the big ideas, the ideas that change the course of science, business, or history, they rarely arrive you know, with blaring trumpets and red carpets dazzling everybody with their brilliance. They're usually dismissed or ridiculed, sometimes for years and sometimes even for decades. And their champions are written off as crazy. And since there wasn't any good word in the English language for that, I just made one up. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you, you talk about these things like statins and Facebook and Google and genetic engineering and rocket flights and radar. Like, what, what is it? What did people miss? Like, why, why do people just pass on these things? Well, I think people, you know, I remember when I was working on a project, um, I was running this biotech company. We were developing new drugs for cancer. And we had an advisor as a guy named uh, Sir James Black. He won the Nobel prize for some of the biggest breakthroughs in 20th century medicine. And he would come over and advise our, our team, uh, you know, a couple of times a year or whatever. And I remember one time I was telling him it was sort of late at night and I remember he'd actually flown 3000 miles across the ocean. He was from Scotland and we had like a, a, a 12 hour day and I was like ready to crawl home with exhaustion. And this guy, this guy was in his 80s. And you know, he's like, no, no, Safi, stay just a little longer. Let's, let's talk some stories. Tell me what you're working on. You know, and I'm like, geez, how does a guy in his 80s like outlast me? I'm like, you know, a half is it. But I remember I was telling him I was kind of depressed about some project in the lab that wasn't working out. And he said, oh, my boy, it's not a good drug unless it's been killed three times. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things that, you know, people in companies that I, we're obviously in biotech and drug discovery, a little different than some of the stuff you guys talk about in tech, or we were just talking about AR, VR and headsets and so on. But I see the same principle when I talk to, I talk to, you know, US military, army, air force, tech companies, entertainment studios, uh, media publishing. And I think that's one of the big things they're missing. There's this whole idea out there of fail fast and pivot. Hmm. fail fast and pivot. But the problem is if you fail fast and pivot, you'll miss the really big breakthroughs. And it goes back to what Jim was saying. Sir James Black was saying, 
the really big breakthroughs stumble many times before they succeed. You mentioned Facebook and Google. Well, Google was maybe, I think, the 18th search company. Facebook, there are two dozen you know, social networks before Facebook. And almost everybody gave up. They gave up on search. Why? Well, you can never make any money. It's just on the internet. It's all free. It's a phone book. Who cares? You can't make any money. And people tried and then they failed. It's the wow. three deaths. You have to, the reason the big breakthroughs fail so many times, the reason what Sir James said is really important to understand and digest and kind of embrace is that the really big breakthroughs that will rock our world, of course they'll fail several times. Otherwise, somebody else would have figured it out. If they're that easy, somebody else would have gotten it. And so the way I try to think about it or, and certainly talk to people about it now is, um, I don't have a very good memory, so I think I think is visually. I think of if you're running an organization or a business, you wanna separate your world, the projects you're working into three things. And I think of them visually as battleship, speedboats, and helicopters. Battleship, speedboats, and helicopters. And here's what I mean by that. If you have a, you're running a business, whatever your industry is, you know, we were in the pharmaceutical, so you have some big drug that's your core franchise, but you know, let's say you're Google and you have some search, you have this core search business. That's your battleship. That's your primary lane. You're zooming down that primary lane and you want the trains to run on time there. You don't want a lot of downtime, you don't want a lot of mistakes. People have very low tolerance for that. That's your core customers. Now let's say, for example, you know, go back in time a little bit, you have this core search text business and it's working. Well, maybe now you wanna search images. That's your speedboat. You start to go out and explore the lanes around you. Those are your speedboats. Now your helicopters are where you fly to distant lands. Somebody says, I know, let's build a, a mobile phone operating system. Let's call it Android. Now that's a helicopter. That's a loon shot. That's a crazy idea. People will say, you're nuts. What are you talking about? What does that possibly have to do with you know, our core search business, right? I understand searching images. Sure, no problem. I understand uh, you know, Google Doodles. Let's do something funny with that. That's again, a little speedboat. But building a, a mobile phone you know, operating system, that's a crazy idea. Or here's another one. You know what? I know we're searching, but we kind of want to send messages to our friend. Why don't we try like, I don't know, building an email app? Are you crazy? That's a, that's a helicopter. Yeah. Or like, while we're searching, you know, how about we map the world so we can search the world? Google Maps. Okay, again, that's a helicopter. So what you want to do is, is go into a somewhat different mindset. You want to you stop this whole fail fast and pivot Fail fast and pivot makes sense if you're doing design, if you want to, you know, all the good stuff that's been developed in agile and design and all that stuff. If you want to quickly get customer feedback on a prototype, what, what do they like? What do they not? So you, you don't spend, you know, a year and a half in analysis paralysis. You just quickly decide something. But if you want to build a helicopter, you just, you have to expect that it's going to fail. You're going to fly off and do all these scouting expeditions and, the vast majority of the time, you're just going to come back empty. That's great. That's so that's how I, you know, that's what I think people get wrong. They think, well, you know, let's fail fast and pivot. But they're really thinking about the battleship or the speedboats. If you want to nurture loon shots, the really crazy ideas that will completely transform your business. And you want to do that before your competitors. You know, you want to nurture loon shots inside because you don't want to, you know, 
click online and read the headline one day that your competitor has just started some business that's going to make you irrelevant. So that's why you want to nurture loon shots and you want to do it in that way, understanding that you should, they're incredibly fragile. You should expect the, you know, the, what, what Sir James told me, the three deaths of the loon shot, it's going to fail and probably fail horribly in an incredibly embarrassing way, multiple times. And that might actually be a sign that you're onto something big. You know, this is from a guy. I mean, Sir James Black was a guy who invented beta blockers and like all these kind of like ulcer stuff that, that if I remember pro- pro- correctly. So uh, that's pretty wild. And, and, but there's an element here too that's, that you talk about that's important, which is really about the group behavior, right? And how does group behavior fit with these radical breakthroughs? Because like, you've just failed. You're feeling really miserable, right? People are like, yeah, let's just go pivot. Let's go try something else. Tell, tell us more about the group behavior. Sure. This is an, another thing that's kind of, kind of how I got started on this project is my, I have a hard science background. So when I first started as a manager, as a CEO, I was pretty young or, or at least pretty young for my industry, not so young for the tech industry. But I was in my early 30s and I read everything I could find about how to you know, build a great company and be a good manager, be a good leader. And it was all about culture, 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 culture. Right. And after a while, you know, the first five, 10 times it was like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, that's you know, right on empower employees. That's awesome. And, you know, group meetings and, you know, Friday night beer hours and like everybody embraced. Blah, 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 blah. But after a while, you know, the, by the thousandth time you read this more or less same thing, you're like, huh, <laughs> I would just hear culture, culture, culture. I would just start to think yogurt. I really want, you know, I, probiotics I, included. Exact okay. probiotic. You know, I, now, could we just get off that freaking tired topic? And I was interested: is there something else? And so, uh, through some other random uh, situations, I ended up getting involved in some national research stuff and understanding how the military had, you know, when it was in a crisis in the early world, in the in the beginning of World War II, how they innovated enormously fast. And I saw that the guy who helped turn around the military didn't talk about changing culture at all. No. In fact, he created a new, a completely different structure. And so that's what I think is missing from so much of the discussion about designing better teams is the structure. And here's what I mean by structure versus culture. Imagine a glass of water and I could stick my finger in and swish it around. And that's always true for any liquid, except as I dial the temperature down, all of a sudden I can't stick my finger in anymore. All of a sudden, that water completely transforms. It turns into ice, completely rigid. Those molecules that were sloshing around suddenly line up. Why? They're exactly the same molecules. So how did they know to suddenly line up? There was no CEO molecule or general manager molecule or product manager molecule. Say, hey, I think it's 33. Everybody run around, run around, run around. Oh, no, wait, it's 31. Okay, everybody line up, line up, line up. No, wait, it's th-. There's none of that. They just do it. So you can think of culture as that pattern of behavior. And you know what? No amount of yelling is going to change. No amount of, you know, uh, uh, forcing people to watch two-hour videos and hold hands and sing Kumbaya it's gonna change culture. Changing culture is very hard. Just like, you know, if you go to a block of ice, yelling at those molecules to loosen up a little bit <laughs> isn't gonna melt it, isn't gonna do anything. No, not at all. But a small change in temperature can get the job done. A small change in temperature can melt steel. So you can think of structure as those small changes that transform the behavior of a group. 
Culture is what you see, the patterns of behavior, whether the molecules are sloshing around or whether they're lined up, whether a team is really innovative and embracing wild new ideas or whether they're rigid and just focused on execution. Structure are the small things you can change. For example, what are you rewarding? If you're rewarding rank, like most companies, most large companies, are you a team member, an associate vice president, a vice president, a senior vice president? Well, guess what? You're going to get a very political culture. And what happens there? If you reward rank, you get a political culture, people will shoot down their neighbor's ideas because they just want to climb up. On the other hand, if you say, I'm not going to reward you by rank, a senior vice president and a junior person are going to get the same base stuff. Everything's going to depend upon your ideas and your results. You're probably going to get a, or your team's ideas and your team's results. You're going to get a very innovative culture. So structure is what you reward and celebrate and recognize. And it can be very small changes. And culture is the pattern of behaviors you see. Fixing culture is very hard, but fixing structure can be very easy. And that's what makes it so important. So, so, so knowing loon shots are, are agile, they're susceptible to uh, folks rejecting them, killing them based on ego, indifference, culture, whatever it may be. How do you protect loon shots? Is it a cultural meritocracy where it's not the biggest title? What are the hippos, highest uh, paid person's opinion? How do, how do you, how do you keep, keep, take these fragile ideas that typically are outside the norm? You know, it's maybe the most dangerous phrase in business. You know, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or that's not how we do it. Or, or how, do, how do you protect loon shots? That's exactly what you just said. You want to create a cocoon around them because they are fragile because they will die very many times, because they're easy to kill. And so you want to start by separating. You want to start by separating in your mind, listen, are we working on the battleship, the core franchise, or some speedboats adjacent, you know, that leaves the mothership and come back? In which case, that's one group, that's one kind of team with one kind of metrics. You want to have, you know, for you know, quality metrics, control metrics, and so forth. You want to minimize failures, minimize downtimes, for example, on time, on budget, on spec, consistently. If you want to nurture loon shots, you want to separate that activity. And you want to have, whether it's a team, a completely physical building, that's fine, or separate in time, that's also fine. People spend 80% of their time on the battleships and the speedboats, and then 20% of their time it's got to be a completely different mindset. I think of it as artists and soldiers. You have your artist hat, and during, when you wear your artist hat, you want to do all sorts of crazy, wild things. You want to maximize failure. You want to maximize risk. Your soldier hat, you're trying to get stuff done on time, on budget, on spec. You want to minimize risk. And that, it's so important to separate those times because you know, if you go back to the glass of water, a system can't be liquid and solid at the same time. It just doesn't make any sense. You can be A or B. Actually, every now and then I, I talk to a group. I think I was there are colloidal suspensions, but just kidding. <laughs> every, I was going to say every now and then, I, I think it was last week I was talking to a group in California and some guy raised his hand and said, what about a Slurpee? <laughs> so just for the record, a Slurpee is a liquid, a liquid. in which there are suspended Part, it's a kind of a very disgusting sugary liquid in which there are suspended pieces of ice yes. that are melting. That's if you right. wait five minutes, it will be all liquid. all liquid. So what I mean is you can't be in two things in the same time in, a, in an equilibrium situation. 
So what you want to do is you want to separate your artists and your soldiers, your solid and your liquid phases. And you put on completely, it could be, like I said, physical, it could be in time. So if you're a small group, a small team, or if you're one person, like a, a writer, what I'm doing now, sometimes you're working, you put on your soldier hat, you're fact checking, you're editing, and you're doing things on time. Another, you have to completely take off that hat. And I have two hats physically, and I put on another one. And this one is you're doing exactly the opposite. You're writing for speed, for quantity, as fast as possible. It's the same thing in a business situation. You want to you know, come up with as many wacky ideas as you possibly can and suspend disbelief. Sure. That's the opposite of what you're doing when you're in the middle of a product launch. Now, Safi, we could be talking about this for hours, right? This is a fascinating book, everything in here, a lot of great examples. I do want to spend 30 seconds, if you can do that, on what phase transitions are. You talked about James Bond, Pan Am, Einstein, right? The rise of the British Empire. Let's talk about phase transitions real quick in the fall of the Qing Dynasty. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Good God, that is a lot of subject for 30 seconds. <laughs> phase transition well, is that phase sudden... Transition is a sudden change between solid and liquid or any other collective behavior. And kind of the underlying theme, although it sounds like an analogy, but you can actually work it out a little bit more mathematically as I, I do, and I kind of hide those equations in the back. But the underlying theme is that innovating well inside a group is a phase, is a state mm -hmm. of organization. And you want to be mindful of which phase you're in, and you want to be in control of that and not let that control you. And so that's uh, you know, where it, it, it goes into uh, industries and then world history, like well, the birth of modern science in China, Islam, and India versus Western Europe is when you go up a metal level. Because here you and I are talking about doing that inside a company. Yeah. But we can talk about doing that inside an industry. And that's why the what movie country? industry is separated into these big, large companies that just do franchises. And the tiny little production shops that do crazy movies like My Big Fat Greek Wedding or Junior. <laughs> and in world history, and they developed the crazy, wacky ideas. And the modern science was this crazy, wacky idea. You know, the earth moves around the sun, which is obviously- Oh my insane. God, how that happened? <laughs> That's a crazy idea. It's, it's on the face of it, idiotic, right? Because everybody can see the sun moves around the earth and stars move around the <laughs> Why did that develop in Western Europe? Well, they were the tiny little crazy companies, the, 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 the Hollywood production shops or the small biotechs. China, Islam, and India was the Columbia Universal and Paramount of the day. They were the giant majors that developed big franchises. Wow. We're here with Safi Bukal. You got to read this book, Loon Shots. <laughs> <laughs> so check it out. Uh, buy your local, uh, your favorite book place, Amazon. I'm sure wherever books are sold, you can follow Safi at S-A-F. I-B-A-C-A-B-A-H-C-A-L-L. And you can follow him on Twitter. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That's, we could have talked to both of our guests for an hour. I wonder if the birth of corporate venture capital is to rent or get to those helicopters. Because, you know, uh, organically, it's hard to keep up with the velocity of innovation. So, you know, inorganically, you got to get to those helicopters and speedboats. So, you know, hence the CDC world. Um, I think you might be right. Yeah, you know, I, and, and you're, you're writing a book about digital duopoly. So we'll talk about how companies need to really focus on all three of those vehicles, you yep. know, in order, to, in order to survive. And we now have our Hall of Fame first ballot <laughs> Strup TV <laughs> guest. Who's a With a jetpack. One of our favorite uh, guests of all time, Ron Miller, Enterprise reporter for TechCrunch. 
He's been covering the technology since seen since 1998. He started when he was 10. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's an incredible, prolific uh, reporter covering the enterprise for TechCrunch. You can follow Ron on Twitter at R-O-N underscore Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R. Welcome back, Ron. And before we start, your thoughts about our first two guests, because, you know, every time we have you on the show, you know, we put you in a cleanup hitter spot. And yeah. this you're following two extraordinary guests. <laughs> it's, it's really crazy because, you know, usually if I tell people what I do and what I cover, people say, oh, that's so complicated. But my stuff is the simple part of this show. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, Scoble took us to a whole new world. Uh, oh, that yeah. It's going to be very near term and super impactful. And, and certainly the notion of, you know, being able to have crazy ideas survive um, is, is it takes uh, grit, as we heard, because you're going to fail multiple times, and 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 foresight. So, and that's what you cover, and that's what you write about. So, thank you. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that he said that you should separate those people because um, some of what the the uh, transformation theory, and I I know Ray and you both probably know more about this than I do, but I have written some articles on it. Have suggested that if you do like isolate that that innovation kind of, and make it kind of a lab, then it becomes much more difficult to kind of make it spread out into the corporation, you know, into the, into the organization at large. So um, there's, there's definitely two theories on that. And um, I, I, I know he's talking about really wild ideas, not necessarily oh, yeah. he's like, you know, your vanilla transformation, <laughs> if there's such a thing. But, uh, you know, it was interesting to hear his theories about that. Yeah, and the more the business is social, in other words, if you do use collaboration tools and you have a culture where you purposefully, mindfully integrate the two, innovation isn't somebody else's responsibility. Everyone in the company, all stakeholders have a voice and are encouraged to think in terms of how they can co-create value. But yeah, I mean, I look, you know, my company is what, 290 startups in the, you know, the Salesforce Ventures portfolio, and we're at a cadence of investing in a new startup on a weekly basis. So it's, it's, you have to recognize that no company is immune to disruption and you need to really have that beginner's mindset where you look outside your walls in terms of what's happening, and figure, figure things out. It's, it's, uh, it's a constant tug of war. <laughs> so. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk about some of the big things that have been happening, right? All the world's afire on these big tech IPOs, right? And it turns out that the consumer IPOs are actually not doing as well as the enterprise ones. Any any theories or thoughts on that? On, on like the Zoom well, versus Uber and Lyft? I always I, I always like to think that the uh, the enterprise IPOs is where the business is. But you know, uh, in all seriousness, though, uh, I, I think that right now, and I, we we had a little uh, debate on on Twitter the other day about this. But I think right now. The enterprise IPOs, because they're business oriented, are a little immune in a way to what's going on in the world. And there's a lot going on in the world right now. There's the there's the tariffs. There's you know there's a, there's a lot of you know uncertain stuff that's upsetting the markets, mm -hmm. and the markets are unstable right now. So I think that's for whatever reason having an impact that a greater impact that is on on these consumer IPOs on 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 Lyft and Uber, and I don't know, uh, you know, once once things settle down, and hopefully it will settle down at some point soon, um, that once that happens, 
whether, you know, Uber and Lyft will recover. And, you know, Facebook started off very slowly when they IPO'd a number of years ago. A number of other companies have started off slow. An IPO is an IPO. It's a, I've likened it like a wedding. You know, you have your wedding day. It's a big deal. Everybody celebrates you. But, you know, a marriage is about what happens the rest of your life, right? Not that day one. And, you know, an IPO is about what happens the rest of the business. It's, it's a step on a road. It's not an end unto itself. And I think, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with Uber and, and, and Lyft, but, but my, my gut tells me that there are substantial businesses there and that, um, you know, that once these external kinds of factors are taken out of the equation, uh, then we'll see what's what. But, uh, you know, for now, it's very difficult to measure how they're doing based on what's going on in the world and how the markets themselves are, you know, kind of panicking a little bit over things that are out of Uber and Lyft's control. Sure. A little trade war, maybe, but okay, hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Ron, before we get to other questions, I'm always interested to know, you know, one, you know the primary uh, uh, journalist for TechCrunch when it comes to enterprise. And so, you know, we, whether it's a company, Infinite Retina or Apple, whatever the spectrum may be, how do people get you, how do they get your attention? How do they get you to come to their events? Uh, give us advice to the startup founders that are watching the show, enterprise executives or PR professionals. How do you get a Ron Miller interested in covering, participating, or being part of your product launch or your news cycle or whatever it may be? Because you are an influential person working for arguably the top, you know, uh, uh, media outlet when it comes to certainly startups and emerging technology. Sure. I mean, and I recognize that. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, I'm not the the most influential enterprise guy. I have Frederick Ladenor working with me. Uh, and uh, so he, he's, he's pretty, pretty good too. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, what does it take to get to, uh, my attention? I, you know, it, it's hard to put a finger on it, but uh, you know, there are certain things that just, you know, look interesting for whatever reason there's something i haven't seen or it's attacking a problem that that really needs attacking uh you know whatever it is that that uh i i, I did a company this week that's doing um you know was it got a seed round for uh for tracking cloud spend which in and of itself is not innovative right there's a bunch of companies out there that are doing that but it yeah. concentrated on cloud native kinds of situations. So, you know, you know, how do you maximize, you know, the exact number of resources or the, you know, to launch a container? And and the, the founders uh, idea was that uh, our thesis was that engineers tend to over provision mm -hmm. because they want to make sure the container actually works when it runs, right? So you over provision and then you spend more than you need to spend. So they have, you know, algorithms and, and tools and, and dashboards and things that tell the, the, the people who count the money and see what resources are being spent, you know, what's a better way to do this? And, you know, then you can have a discussion with the engineering team or with the operations team and say, okay. this is the, this, you know, you don't really need this, this yeah. much resources. Maybe this would be better and it would save us some money in the long run. So, I mean, I, that's one small example, but I just thought it was interesting because it was cloud native. It was taking, you know, a, a problem that a bunch of different companies, a bunch of different startups that have been, you know, bought, have been started, sold. Uh, you know, I think uh, Cloudability was just sold this week. Um, oh, yeah. 
you know, a, a bunch of people are, are working on that problem. But, uh, you know, he was working on a problem, an angle of the problem that was a little different. So that's kind of what I look at. I look at, you know, what's interesting, what, what's, what's kind of out, you know, a little bit further and not necessarily, you know, there are lots of people, if you're the 15th company doing the same thing that, you know, 14 other companies are doing, then, you know, you might not get my attention. Sure. Wow. We're definitely seeing that shift. So, hey, big news this week too as well. In the last couple of weeks, new CEOs and companies that were kind of on fire and kind of curious as to what was going on. Let's talk about Doctor and Snowflake. Yeah, that's a really interesting situation, Ray, because you know you kind of have two companies in in two in two different um, places, right? So, Docker was really hot about two or three years yep. ago, and and then they kind of leveled off. They did a CEO change. They brought in Steve Singh, who's a you know as you know a very experienced guy, who came out of SAP and Concur. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago at DockerCon, a very knowledgeable you know leader, you know, and a guy who understands how to run a company. Oh, yeah. I walked out of that meeting thinking this guy is solid, you know, and he is a solid man. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, suggest that <laughs> yeah, he is. Oh, yeah. totally like, like a couple of days later, I got word that, that he was stepping down. And, yeah. and so Steve took the company and he took a company that was struggling and he's got them at least on the road to, um, you know, to being, a, a more solid company. So they have 750 customers now. They're, they're, they're not just a, an open source company with an open source product. They're a company that has an enterprise product and they're selling that product. But for whatever reason, Steve decided it was time to walk away. They hire Rob Bierman, who came out of Horton Works. And it's like, okay. And you know, Rob is a guy who has a history of buying and selling, of selling his companies. He was CEO at two companies that got sold. He was at Hortonworks, he took them public and then he sold them. So, oh. you know, you can draw your own conclusions. Will he sell Docker? There's no guarantee that he will, but you know, he's, they brought him in. He's a guy who likes to sell companies. So maybe that's gonna happen. So that's on one hand, we have Docker. And on the other hand, we have Snowflake in a super hot startup. Like one of the hottest startups. Something in, in funding. They like what, $4 billion valuation, uh, you know, just, selling like gangbusters of hearing stories of like these young snowflake, you know, salespeople driving around in BMWs because they're making money hand over fist. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a company that's doing well. So I don't know what happened there, but it's, it's interesting because Bob Muglio, you know, came over from um, Microsoft and, and seemed to be solidly in oh, charge of growing this was company. I think it was at Ingration too, so. No, I, I didn't yeah. know that, but you know, Solid, another solid executive guy oh, yeah. with a lot of, you know, solid background, seemed to be growing this company like, you know, like, like there's nobody's business. And then suddenly, boom, he's out and uh, this other guy is in. And so I don't know what happened there. I don't know if you know what happened there, but I don't know what happened there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because, it's, you know, you don't usually see this in a startup that's in a successful position as Snowflake is right now. Sure. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and someone showed up from ServiceNow and brought all their buddies with them along the way. Right. So it's uh, it's going to be right. interesting to watch. It's kind of one of those big shifts that's going on. So, yeah. Right. yeah, we're getting close to you know the first half of this year, and if there was a word cloud that described technologies that are mentioned in terms of focus areas for enterprise 
companies. Is AI still the dominant category for, for in terms of news and innovation and products and, and how companies want to position themselves as leaders? I'm not hearing about AI as much as I was like a year ago, which is not to say that it's not significant. I think it's just kind of settled in similar to what your company is doing. They kind of built it into the, um, the, the platform okay. and it, it's, it's having an impact on different things in different ways, but it's not the, the be all and end all of itself, if you know what right. I mean. It's a, it's a tool for improving how humans interact with the technology. And so there are certainly companies out there that are doing interesting things and especially around, um, I think, uh, you know, model building and understanding how models work once they get uh, put out into the enterprise. And you're seeing, of course, you know, the cloud companies are creating tool sets to help people build AI-based um, applications. But I'm not hearing about it quite as much as I was, say, last year at this time or the year before even as like kind of a front and center topic. So is it, is it digital transformation? Is it distributed ledger? Are there more people talking about business outcomes and technology as an enabler? What are some of the... There's, there's a lot happening. Um, you know, I, I don't see right now specifically, you know, like, you know, maybe, you know, 5G's on the horizon, but I think that, uh, you know, this idea of transforming your development environment and, and one of the things I was at, I was at DockerCon a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to KubeCon next week. Oh, wow. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. KubeCon, yep. Yeah, so I'm kind of immersed in this, uh, this kind of new development methodology. Modern development, yes. And, and so one of the things that kind of fascinates me about this and that I've been thinking about a lot lately um, is the idea that, you know, we're trying to abstract away a lot of the complexity of creating applications because it's expensive to create applications. It's a long process. And, you know, like if you can kind of remove some of the barriers to creating these applications, all of these companies that are trying to transform digitally who aren't really software companies will have an easier time doing it. <laughs> it's not when we try to do that. Uh, the, the, the more complexity we create, right? So we created containers and you know we kind of dropped our monolithic applications into the container. And then we got the idea, okay, well that's you know, we can move faster if we could break it down. So we created microservices. And then you know we started creating so many of these containers that we had to have something like Kubernetes to orchestrate them, you know, because humans couldn't tell all the, couldn't manage when these things were supposed to go and disappear. It took a piece of software to do it. And so then you have to have, you know, this orchestration layer, right? So here we are creating the container, which is supposed to simplify things, and then you create this layer of complexity. And then, you know, in the microservices themselves, oh, well, you know, we, we have so many of them, they have to communicate with one another. And, you know, we have to know which ones it's okay to communicate and which ones it's not. And then we have to manage those. And then we have this, this concept of service mesh now. And, you know, which is just sort of beginning to come on the edge of, of people's uh, consciousness. Right. Ron, it's, on a, it's all going to be flat files going forward. We're not even going to worry about this. <laughs> <Speaker> <laughs> <net>. <laughs> you know, flat files is the way. Put it all but, in one know, spot. The machine will figure it out. You know, the, the, this idea that we're simplifying everything for, for developers kind of creates all of this complexity. And that, to me, is, is very interesting. What a delicious well, hey, break. It's, it's funny. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good, good, 
Good topic. But yeah, it's, we had president of IDC on the show several months ago and he talked about, you know, the notion of multiple innovation as sensors and machine learning and natural language processing and mobile and social and things have to run on these, you know, yeah, you've got this combinatorial effect that uh, makes things a little bit more complex than we thought. Right, exactly. <laughs> we are here with insights from Ron Miller, enterprise reporter at TechCrunch. You can follow him at Ron underscore Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, for the most interesting stories around the enterprise. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks, thanks for having me, guys, as always. Always a pleasure. You're amazing. Happy Thank Friday. You. Thank you. All right. If I ever retire, we know who's going to be the front runner co-host for Disrupt TV. It's <laughs> be awesome. So we are having no show next week. We've got a holiday weekend, but when we do come back, it is episode number 150. 50. <laughs> and uh, I think I, we've already crossed 331 unique guests, so we're on our way to end the year around 400 guests, which would be which is amazing, Ray, when you think about 400 extraordinary people have come and spend their Friday afternoons with us, which is a huge commitment on their part. So when we do come back... Is that more impressive than the Bruins or... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, let's not. I don't want to jinx it. They're, they're, you know, <laughs> the Red Sox have won the World Series. The Patriots won the Super Bowl. And uh, the Bruins are the best team left. And yesterday they secured their spot into the Stanley Cup Finals. So they're four wins away from three teams in one city winning back to back to back, which hasn't happened since 1930s. Um, so so it, yeah. anyway, I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> uh, when we do have episode 150 on the last day of May, appropriately, we have Omar Abosh, uh, Chief Executive of Communications, Media and Technology at Accenture. We have Liz Miller, Senior Vice President of Marketing at CMO Council. And we have Nicole France, who's a repeat guest, vice president and principal analyst at Constellation uh, Research. So extraordinary show. We're both traveling next week and it is a holiday week. And uh, so we'll be seeing you in two weeks to end end of May with three amazing big brain guests on our show. So Ray, your <laughs> final comments. <laughs> Just catch us on SoundCloud, catch us on YouTube, catch us on iTunes. You can always catch us uh, via your podcast and what's happening in enterprise tech, what top CEOs are thinking, what big IPOs are happening, what startup CEOs are doing, where VCs are, and of course, top authors. So 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, every Friday, join us for Disrupt TV show. And uh, thanks a lot, everyone. Happy Friday. Thank you, everyone. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye. All right. See you guys. Thank you.